Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. All right. Well, I began my morning this morning. My first cup of coffee was uh, in one of my favorite cups. I mentioned this on social media one time, and Someone who don't even go to this church bought it for me and sent it to me, brought it here one day. It's this coffee mug that says this on the screen. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And this is a cup that speaks to our uh, common misconceptions as Christians of taking verses divorced entirely outside of their context and understanding of what they are supposed to be about. And formed into something else. This is, of course, based upon Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Chances are you've seen athletes and people like Tim Tebow who've had this on their, their face and stuff. And what it has typically been formed into meaning is this American religious imagination of I can do whatever I put my mind to. I can make all my dreams come true. And Jesus is going to help me in the process. And in reality, if you look at the context of Philippians 4, when Paul says this, he's not, this is not a pep talk about how we get this stuff done. What this is actually about is Paul saying, I didn't have anything at one point, and at another point I had everything, but I've learned contentment. I can do all things, speaking of, meaning I can do poverty and I can do much through Christ who strengthens me. It's a passage about always having enough and being content. But when we take that little bitty bit out, it means something totally, totally different. And what we're sharing today in the uh, the sixth of our seven weeks in Romans chapter eight is another passage that is often taken and pulled right up out of what it needs to be and twisted to being something else. Romans 8.31, the first verse of our passage we're looking at today says, what then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is not a verse that's quoted with the frequency, I would say, of a Philippians 4.13, but it's an idea that has been pulled out of Scripture and meant and put into things that it means something very, very different than what it was before. For instance, a couple of historical examples. In the American South, Confederate soldiers carried a symbol on their, uh, on their, their battle uh, field uh, attire called Deo Vindici. You can see a picture of this on the screen here, meaning with God as our defender or with God as our vindicator. There are records of Confederate soldiers riding back to their homes using Romans 8.31 as a promise to their family that God was on their side. Eighty years later in Nazi Germany, you see that the soldiers who were guarding uh, the, the concentration camps in the Holocaust, they wore these belt buckles. You can see this on the screen here. This means Gott mit uns. In English, that means God with us. And these are just two of examples throughout history of using the Bible, propping up the scriptures to use it for violence and hatred. Meaning, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Or if God is for us, he's definitely against them. He's on our side. He's behind our cause. And what it has been twisted to mean in this is that God has given us a rubber stamp for whatever we do because we are the Christian side. And so we can do whatever we want because God is for us. Because God is on our side. He doesn't disapprove of what we do. And anybody that stands in the way of what we consider Christian, well, they're the enemy. They're expendable even. Now surely you would know that this is light years away from what Paul intended when he wrote these words. And so what I want to do today is, is kind of take this verse and put it back in the context of what the actual passage is telling us in Romans chapter 8. To answer the question, what does it mean that God is for us? So in answering this question, we have to see this through the lens of vulnerability. Because we're seeing a passage that's written to a community who knew the reality of scarcity and accusation and condemnation. They knew this inside and out. The original audience of Romans that we're reading this letter to... They were most likely a very vulnerable people. They were in their culture, in their time, in the Roman world, very voiceless and victims of oppression and of need. And so the promise they're hearing in Romans chapter 8, it goes beyond this place of safety, but into their reality of vulnerability. So when they hear God is for us, they do not hear it from the halls of power. They hear it from the gutter. They hear it from the outside looking in. They hear it from the margins. And so I want to try to understand today together, as we hear these words, hear them from the vulnerable's ears. Hear them from the eyes of one who have no power. And so let's look together at the whole passage, and then let's pray. It says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lord Jesus, today, we come as modern American people. Most of us, in some form or fashion, comfortable. It is hard sometimes to see the scriptures through the eyes of those who are receiving it for the first time in these letters. But may we today, would you give us a special grace to see these words afresh? See these words from a place of need. 
Because, Lord, in a way that gives us the clarity that sometimes we don't necessarily have on our own. Lord, we want to come humbly before you, the living word, the one who is alive and reigning even now. And as we hear these words today, may our hearts be drawn to you. May our lives be formed to you. May our imaginations be changed to see a world in light of the kingdom you have already begun bringing among us. Give us that hope today in Jesus' name. So this past week, the New York Times, there was an article by a guy named David French, and he wrote this article called, Who Truly Threatens the Church? And in the article, French, he's a lawyer, he's a political strategist. He, he talks about this common belief among us Christians in America. Maybe you think this, I don't know, maybe you don't. But the belief is, is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are under attack. And it's becoming an increasingly popular refrain that stirs up plenty of passion and anger. Popular preachers, political pundits, and cable news hosts, they are fanning the flame of this idea, sounding the alarm that you and I, as we follow Jesus in America, we are fundamentally under attack. And so as we step back and see the bigger picture of how we understand a passage like this, we can see why this fear takes hold. And here's what I don't want to do to begin today. I don't want to stand up here and scoff at those people and mock those people because we become the very thing we say we're not going to. What is happening among us is our world is changing at an astounding pace, right? Think about how different everything was five years ago than it is now. Think about how different everything was 10 years ago than it is now. And listen, when the world is changing that fast, there is a great degree of anxiety that comes with that. That much change, that fast, for you and I, is hard to understand and deal with. And every response you see in this world, I believe, whether you agree with this response or not, is a response that is oftentimes, if not every time, rooted in anxiety and fear of what is to come. And in the process of this, what we can know to be true is that the cultural power of Christians, of Christianity, is waning. We know church attendance is at its lowest point in the last 100 years. 30% of Americans now, almost one-third of Americans, say they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And on top of that, there is suspicion around the institutional church that is at an all-time high. Almost everyone has a documentary about them now at this point. All of this, all of this then, compounded by a pandemic that furthers these dividing lines between us. I think about y'all, the church we planted in 2017, that world compared to the world we're in now is like a different reality with different problems, with different dividing lines. It's exhausting. So the question becomes, how do you and I respond in a moment like this, where the world is constantly shifting and where in our anxiety it can feel like what we know and believe is fading away, at least around us. In many circles, there is the rallying cry to fight 
back, to take back the power that seemingly has been taken from us. And this article that David French points out in the New York Times, it leads to this belief that we can only protect ourselves from the world if we hold on to and grasp after that power. Here's what he says in the article. He says, in a Christian America, the belief that we are good leads to the conviction that the churches will suffer, our nation will suffer, our families will suffer unless we run things. Now, you might be thinking, what does all of this have to do with Romans? Well, we're reading this letter written to a community that was largely powerless, largely voiceless. And yet, in the first 300 years of the church, without a voice, without much power, there was exponential growth. In the first 300 years, without any cultural or political or economic power, the church multiplied from a few thousand people to many, many millions without buildings, without power, without big celebrity leaders, all without all the things we think we need to succeed today. And all of this happens, I'll remind you, under a great deal of threat to their lives and their livelihoods. Verse 33 and 34 says again, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Now what Paul is telling us here is that believers, we can assume from this passage, they are the victims of accusations and condemnation because of their faith in Jesus. And yet, when Paul tells them this, he centers not their accusers, he points them to God. They may accuse you, yes, but guess what? God has declared you justified. They may condemn you, they may call you names, but what we know to be true in Christ is that your condemnation is gone. So no matter what they say about you, what has God said about you? Paul points you and I, he points the people of Rome to this reality. It's why 1 Peter 2 reminds us that to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and may glorify God on the day he visits you. Will they accuse you? Yes. Will they condemn you? Yeah. But center your life on what God has spoken and not what they say. Take a hold of what God has declared you to be in Christ. Hold that tightly. And First Peter reminds us, then let your life speak because they can't say anything against that. And if they do, there's a day that's coming when the Lord returns and they're gonna see him for who he really is and the love that they've been rejecting will finally be theirs. And all of this is possible, Paul reminds us, because God is for us. When we can't defend ourselves over and over again, the Bible reminds us that God is our defender. I don't know about you, but I don't think a whole lot as a modern, very safe, and very privileged American about needing God as my defender. 
But the more time you spend in the scriptures, the more you see this God who describes himself as a defender of his people. We, we see these passages written honestly, in a very tribalistic and very violent society. So oftentimes what you're reading in the Old Testament is, is more than a metaphor. When it says God is my refuge and my strength, he's my fortress, they really mean it because they are under attack. They are being chased down as a minority people. They are trying to avoid being destroyed. And when they cry out to God as my defense, that's not just a nice spiritual thought. It's a in-the-mud need for where they actually are. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalms 18.2 reminds us, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. All of this language of protection in the midst of the battle. Not only does the God, does the Bible speak of God defending us, it also talks about how, how God goes as far as fighting for us. 1 Samuel 17 promises the people of God, saying it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he'll give everything, he will give you all into your hands. Exodus 14, one of my favorite verses, says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need to only just be still. Now, all of this is good news. Very good news for us. But here's where this I want to remind us today can go sideways very, very fast. It's easy to take verses about God defending us and fighting for us and to then weaponize God against our neighbors. At best, what this does is it turns us into culture warriors where we are always looking for the fight always demonizing people who are not like us, only seeing the world through the lens of us versus them. I don't know how many times I've had conversations with people where I'm trying to bring up important and sometimes sensitive topics, and it is impossible for this person to see what we're talking about outside of the us versus them culture war lens that they have been given over and over and over again. They have been discipled and brought into this culture war whether they like it or not. That's tell people all the time, I am a culture war draft dodger. I'm out. I'm not seeing the world through us versus them. And why that's so wrong is not only have they historically used it to justify violence in the name of Jesus, but it's wrong because it ignores the power of the cross. You see, the cross, my friends, shows us that when God has enemies, and he does, what does he do? Does he kill them? No, he dies for his enemies. Romans 5 tells us that while you and I were what? Enemies of God. He died for us. What we see in the cross is that it is God's full and final defense of his people. When we need to know if we are being defended or have been defended, we look to the cross of Jesus. When we face accusation from the outside, we look at the one who bore our sin and know that we don't face that from God. When we face condemnation from those who will point the finger at us, we look at the cross and see that our condemnation has been taken away, and you and I have been made right with 
God, when we are facing suffering and attacks from the world around us, we point to the cross and say, I don't need your battle. My battle's already been won. I don't have to live into that anymore. I don't have to make you an enemy anymore. It's why we're empowered to love our enemies as Jesus promises to do in Matthew chapter 5. The cross is why love your enemies makes sense. And it's also how it takes place. We're reminded in Ephesians 6 that our neighbors, both the people that agree with us and the people that disagree with us, are not the enemy. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we look at other image bearers, we do not see the enemy according to the scriptures, my friends, right? We do not see the enemy. And at the same time, the same Paul writes in Colossians 2 that the cross has disarmed the powers and authorities. The same powers and authorities we talked about in Ephesians 6 and he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Meaning that when you and I, when we face suffering, yes, that's going to happen. Will we be attacked? Yes. But when we face this suffering and accusation and condemnation, we do it at the hands of a defeated enemy and not at the people that we're being told that we have to demonize in the process. We are already have victory in Christ. And here's the thing. If you believe you have victory in Christ in this world, you don't always have to win. You can lose and have victory. Boy, I wish that were known and lived because what you and I are discipled to believe that in Christ, we always have to win. We always have to be on top. And all we have is the witness of the scriptures and the history of the church to show us that's just not true. Sometimes the ones that suffered and lost were the ones who found the fullness of the victory we've been promised, not the ones who climbed to the top of the ladder. That's good news. Y'all need to be throwing some hankies or something around here. And it means that both seeing God and our neighbors now through the lens of the cross, when we do this, when we come to the cross of Christ, it is literally, quite literally, disarming. The weapons of culture war, the weapons themselves, I would argue, can finally be laid down. If God is my defender, I don't have to live defensively. Think about this in your interpersonal relationships. Why you would ever feel and be defensive. You, you, you're defensive because you feel like you're not being defended. But if God is my defender, I don't have to live defensively. And more than that, if we're going to know God as our defender, we got to learn to stop using him as a weapon. We cannot hold God as the weapon against the world while simultaneously believing he is defending us from it. Once and for all. And you might look at me and say, I don't know, Justin, it looks like we're losing when we do that. Maybe so. But in response to that, I, I would just simply point you to verse 32. 
It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Meaning, what can the world take away from you that God is not graciously going to give you? What do you feel like you have to fight for that God has already declared is yours in the first place? God has already taken on flesh and blood. God has already lived in our reality as, as a human being. He's already lived in our struggles. He's already cried our tears. He's already bore our sins in his death, already given everything for you. And if that's the case, maybe we don't have to keep grasping after power, afraid that everything's being taken from us because we already have everything we need in Jesus. Imagine being a people confident enough in what God has already declared for you, in you, in this world, that you stop trying to fight the ladder, that you finally lay the weapons down and you allow yourself to love as you were called to love in the first place. And that's why the passage today closes with verse 37, where he says, not knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. What the passage tells us today is that you and I, we have already won. There is already victory present here today. In the ancient world, the conquerors were the ones who sit on the top of the totem pole, the ones who sat at the very highest level of power. They are the ones who rode in on the white war horse down through the streets and declared all of their wealth and power to the world. When that time, in that time, as they thought about who sat at the top of the ladder, it was the conquerors. But Paul reminds them, you are more than that. You're more than the people who've climbed to the top. You have more than the ones who sit in the halls of power. You have all those things and more through him who loved us. And when we live from this, when we start to build our life on the roots of this victory we have in Jesus, we have a ground that can't be shaken in a world that is constantly shaken. This is why I believe this this passage, this message is so important for what it means for us, you and I, to be the church, to be restoration in 2023 and definitely in 2024. Because we're going to need in a world that keeps on shaking, keeps on moving, something to hold on to that can't be shaken. And what I want to encourage you to do today is to take hold of it and to continue to take hold of that victory that you have. Here's how I want to respond today as we move into communion. First, maybe you have been drafted unintentionally or intentionally into the front lines of the culture war, and today's the day you come to the cross and you lay down your sword and you take up the towel and the basin and you begin washing feet instead of attacking instead of always having to have an us versus them world, you begin to see your neighbors as they truly are. And if that's the case, God is not speaking to you today in condemnation or shame. He's saying, come and lay down this heavy burden of always trying to be on the right side 
just be with me. And otherwise, I just encourage you today, if you have wounds in here, we talk a lot in this church about owning our lament and our wounds and our weariness. A lot of us come from backgrounds where everything was constantly victory, 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 and it was felt very empty. When we can rightfully so in a place like this, own our woundedness, own our weariness, own our doubts, own our questions. But I want to remind us today that it's very easy to just stay there. But wherever there is the cross, there's also a resurrection. Healing can be normative. Wounds can be real, but healing and wholeness can be real too. So some of us who have maybe stayed in that season of owning the woundedness and weariness, maybe today's a day, I can speak this for myself, but I'm ready not just for the cross, I'm ready for the resurrection too. I want healing and wholeness in my life, and I want to make that healing and that restoring work of God's love the norm and not the exception. I need God's victory today. That's you. I just encourage you to bring that to the Lord. He's present here today. You don't got to say anything or do anything to work him up, to get him here. He's already here. He already loves you. He's already with you. He's already for you. Today's a day just to be safe in the arms of God as we take these elements together. This, these elements representing Jesus' body broken for us, blood shed for our sins, reminding us that we've been reconciled both to Christ and to one another as God's new family in the world. With elements here on the table, have in the back in the lobby as well. We always encourage you to. You don't have to, but we love when, we, when you're able to join in with us and celebrate this, this each week to te together with us. So I'm going to uh, turn it over to Hannah as she leads us, and we'll move into a time of worship together. Let's just respond to what the Lord's speaking to. Part of that is also...